Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 245 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is November 5th, wow, November 2012. Got a big show for you this week on the Peristyle Podcast, talking about the USC loss at the hands of the Oregon Ducks. Great performance by the offense, not so great by the defense, so we got a lot to get to as far as the game we're going to talk to dan weber a little bit later on in the show we got coach harvey hyde in the first segment they're going to give you their expert insights on what went wrong what has to go forward for this team to get better we got a lot of questions to get to we change it up this week a little bit but if you have more questions for us for following shows we'd love to hear from you comments anything you want try to keep them brief we can't read paragraphs and paragraphs on the air but you can email us podcast at uscfootball.com or call 206 888 6755 leave us a voicemail and you can also go to peristylepodcast.com and leave a voicemail there well we do have coach harvey hyde up in the first segment as promised hey coach how you doing man what's up i'm doing great ryan a beautiful day monday my gosh i was down in manhattan beach yesterday doing our trojan brunch show and it was gorgeous down there and today it's another beautiful day it's hard to believe it's november but let's take it if we can get it right hey we haven't had one rainy Saturday. Not one rainy Saturday Saturday as far as this football season so far. Let's knock on wood. Knock on wood for that. Not over with. But isn't it beautiful? It is beautiful. It's supposed to be record highs today here in Southern California. So if you're somewhere else, uh, sorry. <laughs> but it's beautiful here. You should probably move here. Um, I wanted to thank, before we get into everything, Coach, or thank our sponsor, Southern California Tickets. Go to sctickets.com. That's sctickets.com. Or you can call them 1-800-888-7287 and tell Curtis that uh, Harvey Hyde and Ryan Abraham sent you over there. And Coach, I, I heard that you were saying this, that uh, they do have tickets for USC-Notre Dame, that big game coming up, undefeated Notre Dame. So if you need tickets for USC-Notre Dame, you can go to sctickets.com. You're exactly right, Ryan. I was talking to Curtis this morning, and he says uh, when you do the – uh, podcast, please mention that because a lot of people probably say we're out of luck. We're not going to be able to go to that game. It's going to be a huge game. So uh, just call them and uh, they will take care of it for you. Very nice. All right. So we have we had so many questions. I, I kind of divided them up into different topics. So we're going to mention some topics. There are a few voicemail questions we're going to play. Uh, but it, there was just so much. We were overwhelmed with all the different stuff. And I think a lot of them were the, the same thing, Coach. So we'll start off with the, this basic one because it's going to kind of stem off. And uh, we'll talk about this kind of throughout the podcast. But here's the first one for you. Hi, this is Dan from West Covina. I'm just calling because there's a lot of things that I'm really confused about. And if anyone can uh, give me an answer, I'd really much appreciate it. Uh, I want to know why our defense has digressed from last year. Our Linebackers seemed like they were, uh, you know, the surprise of the year uh, last season when uh, we took on Oregon and pretty much uh, shut them down for the most part. And uh, you think they'd be better over time. It seems like the, nothing has changed at all. You know, Monty Kiffin, is, uh, his team has really digressed. In the meantime, 
across town, UCLA, they're uh, on the uptick. I mean, how were they able to stop Arizona, but we weren't? What's going on? What's going on? Well, you know, I'd like to ask the same question. What's going on? It's a difficult question to ask, answer, first of all, because I don't know what their game plan was for the game or what their thoughts were on how to stop uh, Oregon. Uh, a lot of people haven't stopped them, but it seemed as though SC, with their athletes, I felt before the game, would be able to devise some type of plan not to stop them, but to slow them down, to be able to make them punt more than one time during the game, to be able to maybe control the game a little bit, to the, slow the pace down, let's say that, so that uh, that the offense could control the game a little bit and give them a chance to to rest. But the offense was always put in a position to catch up, catch up, catch up. If you remember a year ago, it was absolutely opposite. Oregon was the team that was trying to catch up, catch up, catch up, and almost did catch up at the end of the game, just like USC almost caught up at the end of this game. When you play a team such as Oregon, you can't make any mistakes. You can't miss tackles. You've got to be able to tackle in space. You've got to be able to uh, have it be simple where you can line up. And I saw throughout the entire game uh, at times, I, I don't want to say every play, but they seem to be having trouble lining up as far as where they should be lined up and who they have and who they should cover and what the responsibilities are. And when you have kids thinking too much, then you really don't get anything done. And, again, I didn't see the performance out of the defensive line that you have to have in order to uh, stop this type of attack. It's a quick-hitting attack. It's very simple as far as the running game portion of it. You know what exactly is going to happen. It's just when it's going to happen. And uh, they try to dictate and put you in a, a questionable situation by the way they change their formations, and they already have a preconceived idea what they're going to do. If you do this, we're going to do that. And they do that very, very well. But what I think everyone's concerned about, they didn't stop anything. They were almost uh, – Oregon could do anything it wanted to do, and what it decided to do is just give the ball to Barnard because they didn't need to do anything else. And he goes ahead and sets a rushing record, a great – football player, but why jeopardize having their quarterback carry the football, which was wide open, too. Uh, you could see that at times. He could have kept the ball and ran up the field, and their passing game, they were 20 for 23, uh, and uh, they have a lot of confidence in what they do, but you'd think they'd want to take one or one of their things away or two of their things, even if you had to play your line and just slant them to the inside like a pinch defense to say, you're not running in here. If you run anything, it's going to be to the outside, and you have your linebackers contained to the outside and not over-pursue. Because what those backs are so good at, if you over-pursue like they did at times, and Barner cuts back, and you don't have someone on the back side, you're in big trouble. But it's easy for me to say this now because I've seen them play and uh, I know it's a very frustrating situation for the defensive staff, and uh, it is for all football fans. Because when you score 51 points and you score 36 points back-to-back against uh, a team you normally expect to, to win when you get 588 yards and 618 yards and you're setting all these records. But remember, records are a stat. Stats aren't what's important. 
It's whether you win or lose, and I, that's what it's all about. So I think that's where all the frustration is coming from. And what worries me a lot about this is you don't change the defense overnight, and the two next teams are the same type of teams. UCLA was able to slow down and almost shut out Arizona by scoring 66 points, too. On top of that, they could have had more. So, and Arizona State runs the same type of offense. So, these two teams worry me a lot because will SC be able to adjust their defense to be able to be able to play these two teams? I think they have a better chance of beating Notre Dame at what Notre Dame does than they might against these next two games because they haven't convinced me that they have a philosophy on how to stop uh, the spread offense. So we'll have to see what happens uh, this week. Uh, I know the kids won't quit. I have a feeling like that. I think these kids are together. Uh, And uh, we'll just have to see. But for me to tell you what's going on out there, you see the same game I do. No support from the the secondary. Uh, No uh, domination in any phase of the defensive game. Receivers wide open. Uh, you tell me. Uh, it's a very difficult question to answer. Well, Coach, you, I think one of the things you mentioned is they didn't stop anything, and I think that's probably what's the most frustrating. And for fan, like you've done this, I want to get your perspective as a coach when you've seen stuff like this happen in the middle of a game, and you're like, "Holy crap, we have to do something different." I mean, if what fans can do, maybe the, the thing is a video game. If you're playing a, a football video game, you get to call all the plays and you call the defenses. If a team is just running on you nonstop, a fan's going to throw in the goal line defense and just say, okay, run against that. If you're going to do something else, I'm going to take away this. So I think it's a simplistic way to think about it because there's risks involved. But there wasn't really much risk when Oregon was just scoring at will. With they, to see them not do anything different throughout the entire game, I think, is what was frustrating you as a coach, have you seen that before where a team could just do whatever they wanted? And what do you do? How do you say, okay, we're going to take this away now and make you do something else to beat us? Well, you have to do that, and that's what it's called adjustments. You have to make adjustments. You have to say, all right, uh, we're not going to run this play anymore because we're going to do this. We're going to put so many people in the box, or we're going to do, or it's going to be the quarterback knows right now that the inside run isn't going to be there because we're pinching. We're in the gaps. We're going to blow the gaps. There's a lot of adjustments you do. We're going to blow the jet gaps. We're going to make them full block or make them do different type of plays that they have to do. There's always ways to block certain things. We're going to shift the defensive line around just before they snap the ball. But you can watch the center's head. You know when he's going to snap the ball. You move around. You jump around. You try to confuse the defensive line. You try to get somebody free. You occasionally blitz uh, in there to try to get to the handoff, handoff point. But you know where the handoff point is every single play as far as where they're going to uh, run their option and where you, you try to get there. You tr- if you don't play and get great domination out of the defensive line, which the defensive line uh, wasn't there Saturday, because here's their philosophy. They take big splits. If you notice, they take big splits, and they don't try to blow you off the line. All they want their offensive linemen to do is tie. Just tie and take them the way the defensive lineman wants to go. If the defensive lineman wants to go that way, you take him that way. If he wants to go this way, you take him that way. If he doesn't want to go anywhere, you just tie him up and keep your feet moving, and the back will find where the open area is. I used to tell my offensive linemen, we used to run a lot of these type of plays, let the offensive back, who has God-given great ability, 
do all the work. You just tie, and he'll make a win out of it. So you've got to make the type of adjustments. Like I mentioned a moment ago, I wouldn't just sit there. I'd pinch. They, uh, I would do different things where they just have to break it to the outside or they just have to uh, pull it out and run the football. And you've got to be able to scrape your linebackers. And your linebackers have the pinch, pitch guy, and you bring your other linebackers back, uh, and you do different things. But it's all got to be together. I mean, the support. Now, they have probably the best blocking receivers in college football. Now, I haven't seen every team play. But if you notice the way those receivers block, they get on you and they stay on you and you don't get off of them. When it's fourth and two, they go to their hitch route. They stack the receivers, and what they do with the, within the structure of the rules, the receiver, the front receiver just drives straight out and cuts you. Cut you. And you can cut as long as the defensive back is facing you. The receiver catches the ball. The stack receiver just runs up the field and gets not only two, but he got eight, whatever he had to get for the first down. There's no question in their mind what they're going to do. And there's always confidence in their offense of how they're going to do it. And they do it very well. I think it all starts with the quarterback. Their quarterback is absolutely fantastic. And the only thing good about it, you don't have to see him again because you don't play Oregon again, or SC doesn't play Oregon again until 2015 because of the scheduling. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but you want to play great teams like that, but that's the way the scheduling goes. If you do play them, it'll be in the championship game in the Pac-12. So, yes, I agree with you. You make adjustments. You have to do something, because otherwise what it comes down to is you're putting your kids in a position where they, they look to you and say, Coach, this isn't working. What can we do to change it? Now, I don't know if I saw anything change. I know they changed the alignment of, of their third and long type of situation or what do you want to call third and six situation when they moved their guards way outside. And, uh, and then what did the quarterback do, Mariota? He just ran straight up the middle. You saw that. He, just, he didn't even tell anybody. He just ran straight up the middle and, and got first down. So they know what they're trying to accomplish. And they do it well. And it's just very discouraging to a team when you score the points that you score, and then you don't see any improvement. And, 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 and I was also surprised, too, when SC didn't receive and they kicked off because you put yourself in a position they went down and scored in about a minute and a half. <laughs> now you're in that catch-up position immediately. And, you know, there are some things that could have changed the game but didn't happen, so that's the way it is. Um, all right, well, the, with the defense performing so poorly, you can imagine we got a lot of questions and people are on – the uscfootball.com message board's talking about it. Uh, people don't want Monty Kiffin to be around the program. They want a coach that can can deal with a, uh, I guess, a younger, you know, offense, a, a more modern, I should say, college football offense. And they're not seeing that Monty can do that. But here's a kind of question on just coaches in general, and, and I think from your perspective on on what you do with assistant coaches when things aren't working out. Here you go. This is Rich from Toluca Lake, and as the old song goes. We all had high hopes. My comment is it seems that uh, SC has reverted back to 2010 with their defense. I didn't see any adjustments at halftime. It seemed like players were playing out of position, uh, no discipline at all. And my question is for Coach Harvey Hyde, uh, when a coach is let go, an assistant coach, when you were a head coach, how did you go about doing that? And was it tactful or just you guys parted your ways? I'm saying this because I think it's time for uh, Lane Kiffin to say uh, adios to his dad and get a 
defensive coordinator there. Enjoy the show. Thanks a lot, you guys. Appreciate it. Bye. Well, thank you very much for, for calling. First of all, it's a very difficult thing to do, and it's a more difficult thing to do when it's your father and you have a relationship because, really, Coach Kiffin, uh, a lot of his success has come to his dad as far as positions, where he started as a GA, how he moved along because of the great respect for Monty. So it's a very difficult thing to do when you have your father as far as the defensive coordinator, and I think he's assistant head coach or whatever he is, all the other titles that go along with him. He's a very respected man, and it's his life. So you know that you want to be very careful that you don't want to destroy his life because he's had a great career. But to normally when you let a coach go, he's not related to you in most cases. So coaches know when their position is not performing well. They know that things aren't going right in their area. And when you're a coordinator or a head coach, you know, they're paying you big bucks. I think they pay money a million to a year. They pay you big bucks for a reason. They pay you that because you're supposed to have a great defensive scheme and have a great defensive team. And you start to realize as it goes along The pressure is building up because I'm not getting done or we're not getting done what we're paid to do here. So it's not as hard as what you think. Uh, I know that I've had to let coaches go, and it's not easy, but I personally interviewed all of them. I didn't uh, in any way try to hurt them on their future. Uh, I wanted to be loyal to them, but I had to just say we're making a change. And uh, in most cases, when they came in the office, they knew what it was all about because their area was jeopardizing the entire football program. And they knew that if we didn't make a change here, it would jeopardize every coach's job, including the head football coach. Now, the head football coach, too, has got to realize, too, his job's in jeopardy because after a while, you know, you're going to get the feel that if you don't make some changes, you're the next guy that goes. And uh, there's got to be some changes. So what happens in, I think, the situation at USC is it might not be Lane Kiffin's decision. It might be his father's decision to say, you know, go out. let's go out to dinner tomorrow night, or maybe they've already talked about it, and I need to talk to you about, you know, maybe it's time. And you make it his idea. And when it's somebody else's idea, it assists you a lot as a head football coach. But there's always guilt in you when you let someone go, no matter who it is, because of the loyalty that this coach has given you and you know their families in most most cases. And that was harder for me because I was very close to my coaches and their families and their kids and everything else. So it's not easy. But you've got to understand you're responsible for your program. And the university is going to hold you responsible for the program. And it's your job as a head football coach to do what's best for that football program and the players and everyone involved in it. So when that time comes, you've got to make those decisions no matter how difficult they are. You've got to make those decisions. Now, I'm not advocating at all of any coaching changes. I'm just telling you how it comes about. I've had coaches come in and I start to sit down and they say, Coach, I already know. You don't have to tell me. I'll make it easy on you. Uh, We didn't get it done. 
And I said, you know, I really like you as a person and an individual, but you're making it easier on me too because I want to remain your friend. I don't want any hard feelings on this type of situation, but we got to make a change. We're going a different direction. And that's what you have to do. Uh, Mac Brown is one of the, the famous for changing five, six coaches a year. <laughs> I mean, I mean, if it doesn't go right down at Texas, he wipes you all out. I think last year at Wisconsin, six coaches left. Of course, one got a head job and others went with him. But you've got to be able to do what you have to do to be successful. And if there's an area that's not being taken care of, then you've got to do it. That's what you're getting paid for, whatever you're getting paid for, to run this program. And as I said, if you don't do it, someone's going to get rid of you. Well, there was a lot of talk, Coach. People, I mean, I think in general, I haven't, there wasn't too many supporters of Monty Kiffin. I think we got one guy that sent a voicemail in that he was supporting Lane and Monty. But there's also a, a certain percentage of USC fans that aren't really happy with what Lane Kiffin's doing, you know, despite the the sanctions and, and how well he's been recruiting and things like that. He's getting a lot of criticism as well. And, you know, he's the head coach. So when a team underachieves, he's certainly going to get his share of criticism. Some people talk about, you know, he shouldn't be doing the play calling, even though, you know, USC scored almost at will against Oregon. But then you could say, is it going to hurt his other duties as, as a head coach? And we've talked about this a number of times on the podcast. But what do you say to those people that are, are calling for Lane Kiffin's head and feel that he should be fired right now? Well, I don't, I don't believe in that at all. As far as being fired from the head coaching position, I don't believe in that. Uh, I think, first of all, if he's as smart, and I hope he's as smart, and if he needs uh, assistance in what he should do, he can, should, should be able to sit down with his athletic director and discuss it because I think it's a, a problem. Let's, let's face it. Uh, the team has not performed up to what its potential was supposed to be. And uh, if it has to do with the play calling and him not being able to fulfill the responsibilities of being a head football coach and an offensive coordinator, it requires a lot of time to do both. Then he has to understand it, too, that, yes, I like to call plays, but if I keep calling these plays, I'm not going to be a head coach very long because people are double-hitting me as far as my head coaching ability and also being the offensive coordinator. So you have to decide what's best for you and the program. It's hard on that level to be the offensive coordinator and a head football coach. It's very difficult. Everyone likes to do it, and he became a head football coach very young. So he didn't have the number of years of being an offensive coordinator like coaches like to be. I was an offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator for years before I became a head Division I college football coach. So I sort of understood both sides of the football. I understood the special teams. So I knew what I wanted. I knew what we needed to do to win or lose. And I had had the coordinatorship experiences where I let it go. But I still was in complete control of the program as far as what we did, when we did it, down-distance situation, field goal, punt, whatever it was. And I knew the time management of the clock, the whole package. It's difficult to do that when you're trying to think of what you're doing on one side of the ball or making the adjustments on the sideline at half the time not watching the game. It's hard to do that. And some people could do that and some people can't. There's a little bit of a knack to being able to do that. 
And it's, again, a confidence in your defensive side of the football if you're an offensive coordinator, but you don't have to watch it. But you have the confidence of what's going on out there where you don't have to worry about it to justify it. But you know you're going to have to answer to the press after the game on what's going on on defense, and you might not even see the game. So it is a difficult way of having to do everything. I think Lane Kiffin is a young man that has a lot of charisma. He's come into a lot of criticism since the day he arrived. He's been through a a lot of tough times. But you need probably more time to spend on the tough times And maybe, as you know, and I'm not trying to be critical here, take care of the press conferences. Don't worry about all the off-field activities that are going on uh, and run the football program. And I'm not advocating he gives it up. But if he doesn't find out what's going on where with his football program, he may have some problems. Um, Coach, I got a couple comments about from people that wanted to know uh, what people thought about what, you know, that Lane Kiffin gets a lot of criticism. What do you think his strong points are and his weaknesses are as a head football coach from what you've seen? Well, Bob, I'll tell you, you guys are putting me on the spot today. <laughs> you, you guys are really putting me on the spot. Uh, uh, as far as strong points, I think that uh, he's very presentable and he's a good recruiter. Now, I'm not saying that he's doing all the recruiting, but what I'm saying, he's in the house and he's the one that determines who's going to offer the scholarships and manage the recruiting and and all of that. Now, I'll tell you, you might be a good football coach, but if you don't have any players, you're not very good. So I think the number one asset of having a championship type of football program, Nick Saban, he's not a coordinator, but he's a pretty good recruiter. And You look around and you see that, People who know how to recruit have a chance. Then the next portion of it is keeping these guys, focusing these guys, and helping them reach their potential of what you expect them to be. And I think that's what I hope he has that ability to do because you normally recruit to your system or your style. You, When you watch Oregon play, you know exactly what they're doing. They're recruiting. It's a speed program. It's a hurry-up offense before you snap the ball. It's speed at every position. The quarterback not only is a great thrower, he's a great runner. He's not a pocket guy. He could be a pocket guy, but he throws that well. But you've got to recruit to what your system is. And he has his philosophy, and he sticks with it, and that's the way it is. Well, I think you have to do that under Lane Kiffin's got to have his philosophy of what he's trying to accomplish at SC, what they need to win with, and then go after those type of players. Now, I think that you can't learn on the job. You've got to have people that have got great experience surrounding you. You've got to have people that have been there with the lights turned on. You've got to have people who... Uh, The players look up to as far as your assistant coaches because of their experience and because of their knowledge of the game. So you surround yourself with players and coaches, especially coaches too on top of the great players, uh, people you have confidence in as far as having your back, taking care of what needs to be necessary, and the confidence in their play calling both on the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball. You've got to have this. Now, I think that 
uh, what has to happen here, and you can't blame Lane Kiffin for the uh, the Monty Kiffin arrival. Was he it was exciting to see Monty Kiffin come, and yet he's got to be in a position here to understand what's best for the program. I like Monty Kiffin. I think he's a great coach. But right now, when you look at the statistics and what's going on, it's hard for you to say if the job is getting done. So you've got to be in a strong administrator. You can't allow feelings to influence what's best for your team and the program. And this is where I want to see him grow up and understand that, whether he's being a coordinator or not being a coordinator or defensive coordinator, what's happening there. But you've got to look at your program as a whole and say, where are we today and what's wrong with it and how can we get better? And that's what I'm looking and hoping he has that ability to do. Um, Coach, just since you're not on the spot alone, I'll, I'll share some of my thoughts too, and you can tell me I'm wrong or whatever you want. But I do agree on the recruiting side, and I think I had a big Twitter war with uh, Chris Houston from the Heisman Pundit and Arash Markazi yesterday. They were talking about recruiting. And, they, I mean, they talked about that anyone can recruit to USC, and I, I disagree with that. I, I don't think anyone can bring in – top five classes year after year. We've seen, you know, guys like Paul Hackett or Larry Smith not really relate to kids and not be able to recruit that well. So you can't underestimate that, his recruiting. And no one has had to recruit 10 scholarships down like you've seen Lane Kiffin do. And right now he you know, has the number one class, according to Rivals.com. Of course, that could change, but still a, a very strong class for limited numbers. He's almost recruiting with one hand tied behind his back and still doing a great job. So I, I think you have to give that to him and I think as a young coach, he's still, I mean, all coaches have a big ego nowadays. I mean, you, you can't get by without that, but I, he knows that he has to hire quality assistant coaches. And I think we saw a little bit less of that towards the end of Pete Carroll's career. He had so much success. You felt that you could bring in graduate assistants and teach them to coach as opposed to going out and getting a guy like John Baxter, the number one special teams you know, coordinator in the country, go get guys like that. And you don't have to worry about it anymore. So I think he's got, enough of a, a sense of his own limitations that he knows he has to bring in, you know, quality assistant coaches and on the, on the stuff to work on side. I mean, certainly, you know, dealing with the media and some of the persona he has a, there's a certain reputation he has that he got, you know, from the Raiders and, and from Tennessee. And, and I think sometimes there's a stereotype out there where people think he's going to act a certain way and then he acts a certain way and he kind of, he, he makes people believe that even more. So I think some of it, Pat Hayden's going to work with him on and, uh, you know, and, and try and fix that as well. And, and I think some of the times too, as you're, you're a young coach trying to prove yourself, if you're a young reporter trying to prove yourself, sometimes you try to do too much. And I, we see this a lot where it seems like maybe he's trying to show people how smart he is, as opposed to let's just do this. It's going to work. He needs to, to make it obvious. And I, we see this, people do this in their jobs and in life all the time where you're, you're in a tough spot and you're a young guy and you want to really show people, Hey, I know what I'm talking about. Watch, I'm going to show you, I'm going to do something cool here when that doesn't necessarily what it's always called for. So I think if he could work on that a little bit, those are some of his couple of his shortcomings. That I wanted to mention in my time. I don't know what your thoughts on that are coach, but that's my thoughts. Well, I'll tell you, it's easy to find uh, the wrongdoing on, on people or how people can do it better. And you know what I always say is winning solves everything. Winning, you'll overlook everything. And when you get at this time of the year and you're six and three or whatever record you might be at any program in America and people are expecting more, then you start looking at it somebody's fault. And uh, if you're right now undefeated, 
and and they and yes, people would be saying what's wrong with the defense, but you won. And yet people would be saying, hey, that's not going to happen. You're not going to be able to do that much longer. But it's so much easier when you win, and winning solves everything, takes care of everything. And right now, they've had trouble winning, and they've been been outscored, and they've had some questionable calls as far as on the offensive side of the football recently. I'm not going to point those out today, uh, but there are some times during the game you say, wow, what was that about? So uh, these are things we can talk about. But as far as him as a young man and what he's done in the period of time he's been at USC, if you remember a year ago, everyone was calling him a genius, a genius play caller, even Pat Hayden. He's the best. He's a genius. Well, you know, it's the same kid. It's the same guy. Except this year they're struggling and they're losing. So, uh, you know, there's got to be some growing up to do on everybody's part. Everybody's part. And uh, uh, I'm not just talking about coaches. I'm talking about everything. Because you've got to put people in a position to be successful and kids to be successful and that's where I'm going to stop. All right, Coach. Well, I know we went a little long. There was a lot to talk about today. Again, sorry we couldn't read everyone's questions. There were just way too many. Hopefully we, we touched on all the topics that you were interested in, Obviously, most of the focus on the defense. But we thanks again, Coach, for uh, coming on the show and sharing all your insights. Always fun. Thank you very much. And, Ryan, I want to remind everybody, too, Southern California tickets do have Notre Dame tickets available. If you're looking for Notre Dame tickets, give them the telephone number again in case they just tuned in now or they didn't listen to it earlier because I'm going to tell you, they're going to play the heck out of Notre Dame, okay? I just want you to know that right now. That At least that's my prediction. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad they won Saturday Notre Dame. I know a lot of people <laughs> cheer all the time against Notre Dame. I don't cheer <laughs> against anybody. But there's nothing great about having them come into the Coliseum. The final game of the year, expecting to maybe go – to the national championship game, you would not want to be in the locker room with me when I spoke to the team because you would probably have me handcuffed and taken away because I would have that team ready to play. What a great feeling to be in that position. No matter what happens, it would be a great opportunity to play that game. Uh, What is it, the weekend after Thanksgiving, isn't it? Yep. So I just want to end with that. So remember... Uh, everything's going to be uh, good, I hope, so that everybody uh, <laughs> has a great Thanksgiving. And, and I want to thank you, Ryan, and all of our callers out there. And I apologize that we weren't able to get to them, too. And believe me, uh, the ship is not going to sink. Just hang in there, okay? Hang in there. And it was sctickets.com, 1-800-888-7287 if you needed Notre Dame tickets, Arizona State tickets, UCLA tickets, or even Pac-12 championship game tickets. Who knows? Let's see if USC gets there. But thanks again, Coach, and everyone else. We'll be back in 30 seconds talking with uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287, 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. 
or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concerts, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. We are back here on the Peristyle Podcast, joined by uscfootball.com beat writer extraordinaire Dan Weber, who was up in the press box on Saturday watching USC and the Ducks. What's going on, Dan? How are you doing? No, up in the press box and wishing I was in a place that had wireless, <laughs> like like all the other hundreds of uh, media people who were not too happy. But uh, um, yeah, we didn't have it down on the we, we didn't have anyway, it down on the field we got either. To see yeah. A lot of a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. Probably more bad than good, but an awful lot of good as well. Uh, and probably a game that will, in a lot of ways. Uh, change the direction of this USC football program. I think most people say they would like, you know, certainly our, our people would hope that this is the thing that maybe changes it in the direction that probably it has to go. Uh, we didn't have any uh, internet down on the field either. It was a lot of uh, media people scrambling. There's a lot of media people there, Dan. Obviously this big game wasn't quite as big because of the lost Arizona. And we had a, we had a lot of questions following that Arizona loss. USC defense gave up so many yards and so many points, and uh, that trend continued. So, uh, like I mentioned with Coach Harvey Hyde in the last segment, we had so many questions. We just we wanted to just kind of go over some topics. And I guess the the first one is is, is defensively, Dan. And we get we get a lot of people talking about the philosophy running the Tampa two or just a a, a, a four three where you have a, a soft zone where you're kind of playing off. Can you contain the the, scra- the screens and draws and sweeps, reverses and things like that, uh, running that kind of scheme against some of these sophisticated spread offenses? It didn't seem to work these last couple of weeks. No, it hasn't. And, and it's clear that those uh, offenses have made more progress than USC's defense in the last year. You know, they kind of fought them to a little bit of a standstill. I think that people think, you know, that Arizona just pretty much threw the ball a year ago and, and shredded USC, and that kind of forced uh, uh, USC to think in different terms and kind of, you know, got ahead of the curve a little bit, certainly in that game at Eugene where they were able to play fast and aggressively and tackle in space. Uh, what you saw Saturday night was a team that looked like they were thinking two to three steps into the play still thinking, what am I supposed to do back here? And by that time, three offensive linemen and Kenyon Barnard were running, you know, right over them. And, uh, and then, you know, not being – they didn't look like they got any kind of jump on the play, any kind of movement. Uh, Oregon got to the edge every single time, not one time, you know, almost, I don't know, maybe once. The entire game, did USC keep them from getting to the edge? And now they've got a head of steam. Even if you tackle them, which very often the first one or two uh, attempters didn't make the tackle either, uh, you know, Oregon, if you give Oregon second and one, second and two, I could quarterback them. You know, unfortunately, they've got a great, unbelievably, the best retro freshman I think I've ever seen in Marcus Mariota. You know, 6'4", 215, and, uh, you know, he has the ability to throw the ball with touch, uh, uh, you know, throw it deep, throw it, you know, doesn't have to throw it short because they didn't have to throw it short. Uh, you would have liked to have seen USC make him throw the ball 
uh, on the money short, uh, but that didn't ever happen. Uh, I, you know, it's hard to believe that USC thought that coming out of the Arizona game, they basically kind of had the answer for Oregon. And Chip Kelly obviously had the answer. He was going to run, get to the edge, run. He's going to run to the area. What's interesting, I thought, the area that USC leaves open against passing teams, that, that short, uh, soft area in front of the corners, Chip Kelly said, well, we'll just run there. You know, we'll just we'll have Kenyon Varner run to that spot where USC never has anybody. And that's what happened. Instead of throwing the ball, uh, the way teams often do on, you know, third and nine and game 10, they just decided to have Kenyon Barner just run it over there with about three offensive linemen. The thing you realize, and you were down on the field, Oregon takes guys who are two and three star guys, and they come up with an offensive line that looks far more athletic, far more active, and bigger and stronger than USC's both lines. How does that happen? Something's going on. They figured some things out, and USC hasn't. And, and you know, I know there's, there are numbers and there are limitations, and there were some open positions at certain recruiting classes. But watching the kids run on the field, it, it looks like two different sports. Oregon's playing a different sport, the way their guys move through space, move their bodies, uh, get to the point of attack. And uh, USC – Thank God, you know, they've got some absolutely great athletes who made some great, great individual efforts and were turned loose and were, you know, called aggressively on offense and, and, and were sent down the field to do things that I know people have been wanting them to do all year. And people have been saying, oh, you can't really do that. Teams are going to take that away from you. They can't really. I don't think, I don't think a team can take away uh, Marquise Lee, Robert Woods, Nelson Aguilar and a tight end, that's just probably not possible. Uh, and USC did it. Wouldn't you like to have those 51 points in the Arizona game or the uh, Stanford game? That was <laughs> pretty good right now. Huh? <laughs> that, that one on Marquis Lee, when he went through, he, he, he put a move on the cornerback, and the quarterback ended up going down. And then he went right past the free safety. I mean, it was essentially looked like a cover two kind of thing where he had to beat a corner and a safety. Beat them both. Long bomb, touchdown, boo. It was, I mean, that was a, this, the same kind of defense, I think, that people that we've heard Matt Barkley and Lane Kiffin talk about, oh, they're running cover two against us and can't seem to do anything against it. But when you have an athlete like Marquise Lee, I don't think it's a question. Absolutely not. I mean, theirs were just a, a better athlete, and, and they didn't execute. Oregon on that play didn't execute as well as they, they have to, and they didn't have as good an athlete or two. But look at USC. How many times have they been beat in cover two, deep middle? I mean, could Oregon have made it look any easier on that first touchdown? You know, I mean, teams get beat, you know, when they're trying to play. Teams make mistakes. Teams assume, you know, one guy's going to hand off the receiver to another guy, and the other guy isn't there to take it. Happens a lot. If you watch USC's defense, it happens too much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it happens, you know, where you see two guys looking at one another like, Wait a minute, I thought you were going to take him after I, you know, I hit him for the first 15 yards. You were supposed to pick him up. Nah, my fault. You know, they, they, the other team's in the end zone. Uh, so other teams seem to figure out how to, how to, you know, get the ball deep middle, deep into the end zone. And USC did the other night. You know, it's, 
two games too late. How how much nicer? This is obviously Lane said last night, so we're not saying anything he didn't agree with. This team's too good to be six and three. This yeah. team is eight and one. This team ought to be eight and one. They ought to still be hovering at number five or so with the BCS possibilities still in their hand. You know, they might still have to go, you know, win a um, win a game at Eugene. But this is a team that ought to be eight and one. Now, how they go from here? I mean, you know, I'm not going to say they ought to even win the Arizona State game or that they will or the UCLA game. But, you know, they ought to be in a position where they would give themselves a chance to do that if uh, if they developed, uh, you know, at the end of the season like they did last year. But we haven't seen, you know, a great many signs that, that that's happening. Uh, the weird thing is, you know, where the offense was under the gun, knew they had to score a lot of points, just went for it. No, no playing around, no conservative, no – uh, cutting it close, no outsmarting yourself, just go for it. And produce 51 points and probably should have produced 60-some if, uh, if they don't have the breakdown. But right. then you got the defense, seems to have no answers, I mean zero answers. That was stunning. Team runs, uh, what, 83 plays against them, and USC had the answer on about seven. <laughs> no, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not good enough. That's not a high percentage. <laughs> <laughs> not a very high percentage there. Well, I mean, well, I get, people were coming up to me all the time asking me about this. And, and from my point of view, you see the first half, it didn't really work. And, and I, I didn't like the talk going into the game about preventing the big plays. To me, it was more about when I did all, I did a lot of radio interviews before this. I'm like, to me, it's about creating the negative plays because like you said, you can't let them get second and one or second and two. You're dead. You just hope you don't give up an 80 yard or you're giving up the first down. You hope you don't give up an 80-yarder there. But to me, you have to, to line up near the line of scrimmage. You can't leave these soft areas where you saw, you know, Oregon take the snap, throw the ball without – there's no drop. There's not – he was a shotgun snap, throw the ball immediately. A person is wide open in the flat and running before anyone touches him. He's 15 yards down the field. You can't let something that easy happen. And I know there's taking a risk when you bring up guys near the line of scrimmage. But once you know, there's no there's really no risk anymore if what you're doing isn't working at all. If you're trying to prevent some big play over the top that happened anyway, I don't see what the risk is there. You saw sometimes Deion Bailey be up near the line of scrimmage where it looked like they had six linemen. You know, the two two outside linebackers were up around the line of scrimmage and stopping run plays in the backfield, not letting guys get to the outside. That worked, but like you said, that was like six or seven plays they tried that out of eighty three. Uh, I mean, did you see them need to do that more? And it, it's kind of baffling well, after halftime. My do first it. take is um, it looked like the entire game plan was please, 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 please don't, don't um, get out of your, uh, you know, your tackling lanes. Don't give them the deep play. Please, 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 please don't do that. So that's the number one thought in their minds clearly was, okay, I can't. And, and, and it looked like that resulted in a soft, soft defense. And Oregon said, oh, they're going to play a soft. We're going to run right up and get in the bodies of every one of those guys playing soft because they're kind of looking and waiting and hoping they don't, you know, make a, don't make an early move, we're telling them, so that they don't get out of position. And, you know, it's like they coached them all like they were Morgan Breslin saying, yeah, you're quick and, yeah, you can go flying in there. But if you go flying past everybody – you know, you won't be able to make a play, and they'll have a big gap, and they'll have a seam, and they'll just fly down the field. So that, it seemed like that was the entire 
approach to the game. And what that did was, I'm, I was kidding about in the press box. I said, "Geez, I think Nike produced uh, new shoes for USC for this game. I think they've got roller skates on the bottom of them. It looks like to me. I mean, they basically were were moving backwards." And Oregon so smartly took advantage of that. The way they were releasing their linemen and and, and uh, wide receivers to get downfield and block, and they were running at whoever the point of attack guy for USC was with three and four people. It was amazing how well. And, and, and to me, if you don't do so many things, if you don't have 120 plays on your play sheet, you can adjust in the heat of the game. You can adjust on the second play of the game to what they're doing, and which is what Oregon obviously did. And you can adjust quickly, and it doesn't take you know a whole lot of nuance to complexity to to do that, and everybody being on the same page. Uh, and, and that's where I think they have such an advantage now. They practice one way. They practice full speed. They're not thinking about, you know, who's going to get hurt this week. Or, or, or I guarantee you this, if people were allowed to go watch Oregon's practices, there would not be a report that, you know, today the Ducks were physical at practice. And the coach would not say, wow, we were really physical at practice today. They're always physical at practice. They always practice fast. That's who they are. That's what they do. They're not spending time, you know, thinking about, well, how many different calls are we going to have to make on this particular play? Make sure everybody's got the call right. Uh, it's just a different approach to college football. It's a different approach to football. And uh, I would say the way the college game is going now, I'm not saying it's, you know, you got to run the option, you got to run the spread or anything. It's just the idea of uh, simpler faster, more physical, more aggressive, more attacking uh, in both ways. Now, Oregon attacked on defense, too. Didn't work out that well for them, but (laughs) but that's what they do. That's who they are, and that's how they play the game. And they know who they are. The thing about USC, you didn't know that offense was going to show up, and you didn't know that defense was going to show up. And you're still asking yourself, well, what about the defense last year? That he had most of those same guys. Where did that defense go? Or is Oregon that much better? Or did they, you know, physically, you know, improve that much? Are they that much faster? Are they that much stronger? Are they that much smarter? What is it? Uh, all you know is the trajectory of where things are going. And that USC team last year was a lot better at this point in time than this USC team is this year. And, and I'll quote Lane from last night. That's not right. That shouldn't be. And that's on the coaches. It's on me, Lane said. And he's not wrong. It is. Um, you mentioned some of the downfield blocking. Here's a voicemail question I wanted to play and, and get your thoughts on this. I've heard several people talked about this to, uh, to me as well. Here you go. Hey, I got a question for Dan Weber and Ryan on the podcast. Uh, it seems like Oregon holds a lot. And I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying it seems like they have a style of play where they really grab the jerseys and our guys just don't get off the block. And I'm wondering if that's legal or if that's something that we should try doing because it seems like their blocking scheme is such that they just hold just for that half a second and it allows their running backs to get 8, 9, 10, 50 yards. I also particularly noticed it uh, yesterday uh, with our with our defensive backs never just getting off a block at all. And it just seemed like they were being grabbed. And, and I don't know what the solution is to that or whether that's legal or what anybody's looked at that. But anyways, appreciate your comments on that. And uh, could have been worse. Got to win the last three. Thanks, you guys. 
Chris in San Pedro. Hey, Chris. Uh, yeah, it, it's something you notice. The thing is, if USC tried that, they would get called for it, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Uh, if you don't do it all the time on every play with everybody, if it's not part of who you are and then all of a sudden you start trying to do something, uh, you're going to probably get flagged for it. You probably won't be very good at it. Secondly, uh, Oregon's uh, defensive backs, they probably mostly didn't just stand there and wait for people to run up and grab them. You know, they were like kind of moving, moving around. They weren't, you know, standing targets. Uh, USC's kids, you know, that was a stand around, look around, hope not, hope they didn't get out of position defense much of the game. Uh, does Oregon push it to the limits? Darn right. I mean, do they have guys leaving in line of scrimmage, uh, pulling guards and uh, tackles releasing to the outside early? Yeah, they do. They're really good at it. They take advantage of the snap count. Uh, they push it as far as they can. Uh, it's too much. It's like uh, Utah figured out with the way they moved their defensive linemen at the very last second and caused all those uh, uh, false starts on teams. They're probably taking advantage of a slight, you know, little loophole in the rules or in Oregon's case. Uh, officials are just not going to call that on them every single play. And when you're downfield with three guys running at a at a cornerback, you know, they don't care if you're holding them or not. You, you know, you got some big tackle running over a cornerback whether he's got his arms out or not. They don't put their arms out very far. They keep their arms in. Um, they do a lot of the things that you're allowed to do in the context of the uh, line of scrimmage, the offensive set, the tackle, the tackle box. Uh, they still do it downfield. Uh, you know, do they push it? Yeah. Uh, did they ever get called for it? I don't think so. Uh, so I guess if they don't get called for it, it's okay. It's like, the, you know, in baseball, when you watch a major league game and, you know, they never call, you know, pitch above the, the, you know, the waist is, is high. Well, that makes it a ball. You can get, show me the rule book all you want. I don't care. They call it a ball every time. It's a ball. Uh, so I think USC uh, would have to change the way they approach the game. I mean, guys like Robert uh, Woods and Marquise Lee are fabulous downfield blockers. But I think the difference is, but Oregon, you saw two and three offensive linemen downfield. How many times have you seen USC with that many offensive linemen downfield leading the play? You know, and, and obviously the running backs were ready to run last night. They were, I mean, the Saturday, they were fired up. They were hitting the holes. They were, you know, running hard. Uh, anything that those guys could do, every single one of them was really busting their, busting their butts. But it's just not. It's just not the way USC approaches the game, and I think it's something they really got to look at. Uh, uh, Oregon has figured some things out, and USC has to has to get there. But it certainly looked to me like uh, even if USC was allowed to do that, they wouldn't have been able to get uh, that many people downfield uh, to take advantage. If the officials said, we're going to call it the same way both ways, we're not going to call those things downfield, USC couldn't have taken advantage of that. That's just not who they are. And uh, athletically right now, uh, their offensive line doesn't run uh, like Oregon. I mean, if you would look at the USC offensive line, the one guy that looks like he could play, play uh, athletically, fitness-wise, um, conditioning-wise, all of that, is Max Turk. Is the one guy you could say, I could put him over there and he could run with those Oregon guys and he could, he could keep up with them. Uh, the rest of USC's offensive line is much more of a kind of an NFL-style 
stay in place, uh, finesse, make all the right moves and uh, adjustments and things like that, but, but maybe not, not somebody that's going to run downfield and run through people. Hey, Dan, another topic that came up, and it was the refereeing of the game, and uh, the infamous glasses ref <laughs> did this game. Yeah, he's, he's a beauty. You can follow him on Twitter, Jay Shirts. I think it's Jay Shirts or something like that, but you, he has a Twitter, well, I'm sure it's a fake Twitter account, at glasses ref, if you want to check it out. Yeah. Um, but, I, you know, there was more, there were 10 penalties on Oregon, only three on USC. There was more on USC that ended up getting declined. Um, and, you know, there, there was a lot of play, people talk about the, the pass interference in the end zone on Marquis Lee. I mean, there was another interception Barkley threw that was negated by a pass interference. There were several third downs that were incomplete that kept the drive alive for USC because of pass interference. I mean, they called a lot of stuff. On Oregon, there was that onside kick that was, you know, very questionable. And, I mean, it seemed like there was stuff that, that I, I think if you asked Oregon, they felt that they got hosed, you know, uh, with, with the referee. Like the, the referees bailed out USC a lot of times. And you ask USC people, it, it was split. I think some USC fans felt that it was fine. Some people felt that the, the refs hosed them. I mean, what were your thoughts on that? Because it did seem like there was consistently calls on, on both sides that I guess you could question or, or help both sides. Yeah, you know, this is the thing that I it worries me uh always and ever since I've been here. And and I you know, with somebody that that knew a lot of officials in both the Southeastern Conference and the Big 10 and and spent time with them, went to officials meetings. So I I paid a lot of attention to it. And um uh the thing you really get worried about with a with a big game in the Pac-12 is you just don't have enough big time guys who can handle the moment. I mean, we saw them just totally collapse last year at the Stanford game at the Coliseum. Those guys know when they come down that tunnel, they're not ready to handle a game like that, and it's scary. I mean, for example, we're down on the field toward the end of the game on the one stand, or one Oregon punt, and here's Mikel Roby is ready you know, to catch it on the bounce, and the Oregon kid literally knocks it out of his hand. You can't do that. I mean – you know, the, the defensive team, you know, you have to give them a chance. You know, and he basically right at the sideline. The thing about it, and it would have been, a you know, kind of one of those calls, oh, I wonder what they're going to call. And you looked around, there wasn't an official h- half as close to the play as I was because their mechanics are so – and I talked to the Pac-12 supervisor who, who grades the officials, a wonderful guy, and he thought they had a good game. So, I mean, I thought they didn't screw the game up. Okay, I mean, so if they didn't screw the game up, and you know, and I might be, agree with him, hey, they did a great job. They didn't take it over, uh, but it's typical Pac-12. They're just not good enough. They're really not. They're not good enough. I, I did, didn't like the fact that too many times they did allow the uh, Oregon offensive lineman to get a jump on the snap. Uh, that's something you can't do. That's like you know, track. If they, you know, if you get a false start, you get a false start. Uh, and um, and that was that bothers me a little bit. It also bothers me. No group of officials that I can recall are so far away from the play uh, mechanically. You know where they station the officials in the Pac-12 and their ability to get a jump. And uh, I mean the Marquise Lee play where he needed you know two yards, two plus yards to get a first down on fourth. They had no. I don't, I'm not sure he made it. They gave it to him because they assumed, oh, he must have made it. There was no it didn't look like he made it either. Yeah. near uh, 
able to line up where he was. Uh, it was amazing. You know, I mean, it was right where I was, so I could see it. But I'm thinking, probably didn't make it. Maybe they'll give it to him on forward progress. But by the time they got there, they had no idea. So they just assumed it's Marquis Lee. Yes, he's probably not going to run a one-and-a-half-yard play when they need two. They gave it to him. They had no idea. That bugs me. So that's my that's my Pac-12 take. Uh, but just think, you got a big game like that, and Jay Strikers is your choice to referee. That might that might <laughs> tell you something. Yeah, that's <laughs> kind of funny. Um, there's some other topics that I that I wrote down that were that that I saw in a lot of different emails. Uh, going with the onside kick, I, I put up a column today about some of the decisions and stuff. I actually didn't mention that one. Um, but deciding in the fourth quarter or, you know, sometime late in the third quarter, is there really a, a you know, a, why wouldn't you just onside kick the ball? It doesn't matter. Or it can go 80. They can go 90. They can go 20, 40 to score. That's a really good point. <laughs> Plus, that may have been as well executed an onside kick. If Nelson, I think, Aguilar understands where that ball is going to bounce in that, he, he picks it up easily. Uh without having to have – I mean, you had two guys that could have made the play. That, that was as good an onside kick as you ever see. Uh, that they got it wrong is too bad. Uh, uh, you know, he doesn't have to catch the ball the same way that they have to catch, a, you know, a, a pass in the end zone. Uh, Nickel clearly uh, – uh, and they used the bobble at the end when he hits the ground as a reason to get him out of the fact that they thought he wasn't inbounds when he got it. Then they he realized, oh, yeah, he was. Okay, it was close, but he was. So they covered themselves that way. Uh, but those are some big plays. you got to admit that. I mean, the, how you miss two fouls on Nikel, I mean, excuse me, two fouls on Marquise Lee on the same, you know, uh, interception in the end zone. I mean, there's no bigger play in, the, in football than an interception in the end zone when you're down close. Uh, and you have to get that right. And that's two years in a row, two gigantic games, Stanford and, and, and uh, Oregon, where the Pac-12 officials didn't get it right on the biggest play of the game. And that's pathetic. And that's just, uh, that's a disaster, I think, for the Pac-12 and for officials that, you know, on those two big plays. And one has to think that it, had they were going the other way, had that been a Stanford guy that got tackled in the uh, end zone last year from, you know, Mr. Luck uh, throwing the ball, or had that been an Oregon kid Saturday, they probably would have gotten called. I'm sorry. You know, you, you don't want to act like it's too big a deal. Uh, but uh, there are some coincidences, and mostly those plays happen against uh, uh, USC, where they just don't quite see it. Now, you wish Matt Barkley could have adjusted. Here's Marquise is wide open in the end zone. I mean, how you know? Again, there's a play you or I could have made. Uh, as long as we haven't released the ball, uh, you know, he's three yards in front or three feet in front of the guy who's down, who just fouled him, and you end up throwing it to the guy falling down behind him, uh, you know, <laughs> um, well, okay. So another, uh, this is probably the most popular subject that we got emails on and, and voicemails and things. And again, apologize for not being able to read everyone's. We just had so many, but the, the, the talk about Monty Kiffin replacing him. Now, technically he's not the defensive coordinator at Orgeron, you know, at Orgeron's the defensive coordinator, but, you know, Monty's the guy up in the press box. He's making the calls and things like that. Maybe get your thoughts on it. But a lot of people feel like he should be gone. Uh, Lane Kiffin said in the conference call yesterday that, um, you know, it's tough to make major changes during the season. He said that that just never works. Uh, so kind of get your thoughts on that. A lot of people want to know he should be fired right now. They want him fired now. Well, 
I mean, I guess the, the, the difficult thing is they have been building this theory of the way to defend spread teams and especially Oregon. This is the third year. And look at where it is. They, you know, they just gave up the most yards in the history of USC football after building for three years. They obviously don't have the answer. Not only they don't have the answer, they don't have any answers. I mean, and it's getting worse. Uh, but part of it is I think people talk about the scheme and, uh, or, or the, you know, the calls during the game. I think an awful lot of it is the general approach to preparation during the week, during spring tra- you know, practice, during the summer. You know, what is the general thinking of how you get a team ready? And I just think um, I'm not going to go to anything else other than uh, 25 years in the NFL – I think doesn't even remotely prepare you for being uh, the guy in charge of, of defenses at the college level against some of the better coaches. And, and, and the Pac-12 is not going downhill that way. I mean, you saw, you know, as bad a job as they do on the road and as bad a job as Arizona did without their quarterback uh, Saturday, Rich Rodriguez is like a big-time professional coach. And they're changing, uh, you know, around the Pac-12. And, I don't think USC can get away with not being absolutely as good as they can possibly be in terms of preparation every week. And I don't think it's all about game plan and it's not all about scheme and it's not all about lineups and all that. It's about uh, intensity and, uh, you know, playing fast and playing aggressive and it's a mentality of attacking. I mean, is it a surprise that, the best defenses in the country are the attacking, aggressive defenses that, you know, Alabama and LSU play. Is it a surprise that the last two times, you know, those teams, um, you know, SEC teams with that kind of a defense uh, play Oregon, you know, they, they win. Uh, you have to do things to Oregon. Uh, you can't let Oregon th- do things to you. And uh, if you're afraid, then, then you lose. It's that simple. If you're afraid you're going to get somebody hurt in practice, you lose. If you're afraid you're going to get somebody, you know, out of position in the game, you lose. You can't go into Oregon, you know, or Arizona or those games being afraid. Hey, you can't go into the UCLA game being afraid. You know, that kid's pretty good. He's really had a good year, that UCLA quarterback. He's gotten better and better and better. They've got some weapons. And, if you know, if you're, you know, trying to always counterpunch, you know, you got a freshman quarterback, you put pressure on him. You take him out of the game. You know, and I don't mean, you know, physically, you don't hurt him. You just don't let him do what he wants to do. Marcus Mariana, hey, he can look pretty good. Nunez kid at Stanford, they can all look pretty good if there's no pressure on them, if they're not put under any, any kind of, you know, attack. Uh, if they're allowed to just, you know, do what they want to do, they can look pretty good. Uh, Matt Barkley, he knows what it is to be under – under attack, why is uh, why is a USC quarterback more likely to be attacked during the game than the you know young kid playing for the other team? Well, I think it's it's a philosophy that you know. And the other thing I think is really difficult in 25 years of the in the NFL, for example, how many really good running quarterbacks did Monty Kiffin have to deal with? Any? You know, I mean. It's a different world, and it, you know, there are a lot of defenses in the NFL that don't account for quarterbacks because they don't have to 
because people aren't going to do that in the NFL. But uh, they're not playing in the NFL. To say, oh, well, we, we, you know, we, we do what we do because it helps kids get ready for the NFL. Uh, and it really helps us recruit all over the country. We can recruit kids because we're getting ready for the NFL. And that probably has been the secret with USC is that put more guys in the NFL and still have had a, you know, a pipeline and all these, you know, great players and Tyron Smith and Matt Khalil the last couple of years and all of that. But uh, you have more games like they've had the last two weeks and kids are going to, you know, I, 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 you got to wonder when do kids look at and say, gee, I don't know. Uh, is this going to, you know, is this the way I want to go in college? I, I think, I think you have to start coaching them like they're really a college football team, college football program, and uh, and some changes have to be made. Um, well, how does that go down? And people want to know, I mean, can Monty, I think you've talked about this before, where he could maybe take a consulting role. People are, are I got a lot of tweets and stuff. People are saying, how do you fire your dad? Um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, questions. You, how this at, goes you know, there are a lot of programs like Ohio State. I think a couple of years ago we went over there. We were realized I was going to the media guy and I said, wait a minute. They got like eight guys that used to coach here or were head coaches somewhere else that are on the, in the program. And none of them are listed as a coach, but they've got jobs for all of them. I mean, you know, schools have jobs for guys like, you know, uh, in charge of uh, NFL relations or whatever. The guy who's, you know, there for when all the NFL scouts come in and goes over all the movies with them and, and then counsels kids on uh, on getting ready for the NFL and all that kind of thing. You know, Monty would be so good at, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I'm just not sure if it's almost even fair to take – Okay, I'm not sure if it's really fair, you know, to ask um, someone, anyone, with that much NFL background, to try to figure out what is it that we do for the, um, you know, for teams that have. I mean, now that you see, if there are going to be more more players, uh, Matt Scott was a fifth-year senior at Arizona, and of course, you know, he goes down like in the uh, UCLA game, they got no shot. But you look at a Marcus Mariana. And say, man, if there are more kids like that out there who can do what he can do at six four and two fifteen, two twenty, with the poise he's got and the ability to run it and pass it and uh, make all the decisions and what have you, man, college football is going to be really tough to defend. Uh, you know, in the next few years. I mean, you already see Nick Saban complaining about what teams like Oregon are doing because you know he's thinking, you know, this is not going to be you know, walk in the park if that's who we end up with. And I'm sure he's trying to already work the officials for the championship game so that they won't let Oregon do some of the things that Oregon's allowed to do in the Pac-12. But, uh, man, it's not easy when you think about it to come up with ways to defend these guys. But is it right to ask somebody who's done something one way, you know, his whole life to come up with a new way of doing it? I mean, you basically have to take some chances. You have to just be willing to – you know, I think wing it. I mean, Oregon did. Oregon got to where they are by basically saying, we're going to do some things nobody else has done. We're going to see how this works. And over the years, we see how it works. I think defenses are going to have to do the same thing. And I'm not sure, you know, where do you go to to get that person uh, to be able to do that. But uh, but we, we know that the coaches on defense, Ed Orgeron, you know, Scotty Hazleton, uh, Marvin Sanders have reputations for uh, favoring aggressive, shut down 
defenses, whether it's a version of what Monty did or not. That's what they their reputations coming in here were shut down coaches. And now you have a team that went out and basically stood around like they were waiting for a bus Saturday night. I mean, that was not a team that looked like they had any intention of shutting down um, Oregon. And you just think, how is that working? How, how do you have coaches who you know their reputation and their philosophy is to try to really be aggressive and shut people down with athletes, and then you go out there and you have a team that's standing around and having, you know, offensive linemen run 15, 20 yards downfield and, you know, basically stand on the, you know, the, the shoes of the cornerback who hasn't moved yet and pound him into the ground. I, I don't know how that how that's working, but I don't see how it can work either. It, it, it just can't uh, going forward. Can't work. And one last one before we let you go, Dan. Some people emailed about uh, that the the poor play from USC. This is the first season uh, playing under seventy five scholarships. Um, people kind of blaming that, saying that you know it, it's a lack of depth. That it's a seventy five versus eighty five thing, and and that's why USC is playing poorly. Maybe get your thoughts on that before we let you go. Well, I think I think where that really comes into play is if the coaches really think about it a whole lot, and it uh, it, it governs their thinking in spring, summer, and. Uh, and, you know, starting in August, if it governs how you coach them, how you prepare them, how hard you push them, uh, all of that. If you say, you know, I was one of the first ones who thought, well, maybe the NFL background will give you an NFL model uh, of dealing with a 51-man roster. Maybe that will help. Uh, I probably completely readjusted that thinking and thinking the NFL model doesn't help. Uh, it's actually – it hurts them. These kids are not. These kids are. I've said it a million times. They're a lot closer to high school players than they are NFL players, and uh, and I think they've got to be coached more like that. And uh, if you're so aware of of the depth, I mean, I think you know they've had some open classes on the offensive line, for example. So do they have anybody pushing the guys that are starting? No. Is that a bad thing? Yeah, that's a bad thing. No question about that. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean the coaches can't push them. You know, and it doesn't mean they can't coach him, you know, uh, on, you know, fundamentals, stances, releases. I mean, why should they have to wait till after practice to work on their um, pass rush and pass block setup and all that kind of thing or on their snaps? Why does that happen only after practice? <clears throat> Is that the kind of thing that, that you wonder about? Is that because you've got 10, third, and nine plays to work on? And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know, but, uh, Practice clearly isn't working. When you're the worst team in the country penalty-wise, when you're one of the worst in uh, stopping third down, uh, they got much better in converting them, uh, and they, they got aggressive, and they forced uh, Oregon to do some things. They converted eight out of 13 the other night. So they went from one of the really poor, certainly one of the, the worst of the good teams uh, in converting third downs and one of the worst of the good teams in stopping third downs. That's an awful lot of coaching. That's an awful lot of how do you practice. And how do you look at the game? And uh, that has to change too. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things. I think they've really got to rethink uh, from their approach this year. I think you know that's the one thing you hope is that they learn they learn from you know what's going wrong. I mean, that's that's a good coach. A good coach will learn from what's going wrong and, and change and, and 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 make the proper corrections and and do them you know instinctively and almost immediately and. Uh, the amazing thing, 
and Lane talked about this, and they've talked to the players about it, as much as they've screwed up, as badly as they played in the two games they lost, uh, or as badly as they played on defense in the third one, they still have kind of control of their own destiny. If they went out, if they beat Arizona State and UCLA, they go to the championship game. They win the championship game. They, uh, who knows? They could end up in the Rose Bowl. Uh, uh, and they've got a shot at Notre Dame. You know, a season-ending, you know, arch rival comes here. They could end on a high. I mean, they could, no matter what, they still have time to correct this. But they've got to correct it. They didn't correct anything last week. Last week, for some reason, you know, they kind of practiced a little physical, and they seemed like they were paying attention. But, uh, again, you don't get to see what are they thinking in the back of their minds in terms of how they're going to, you know, stop Oregon. Who knew that they were going to stand there? I mean, and not get out of position. No, they didn't get out of position, but they didn't make enough plays. And uh, I think that's the thing. The theory has to be, how do we create playmakers? How do we get guys into position so they can make plays? The, the offense made a lot of progress last week in allowing playmakers to make plays. Now, if only the defense could figure out, how do we let our playmakers make plays we will so see far, they yeah. don't seem to have a clue <laughs> not quite yet all right dan well i know we kept you a little long but thanks very much for uh, coming on the show we'll uh, see you tomorrow I'm practice. To the choir here i think maybe a little bit with, yeah. um, with the guys on the podcast but uh, we always hope that maybe there's a little wider audience for some of this and it filters through somewhere right <laughs> all right well thanks again dan and everyone else thank you very much for tuning into the peristyle podcast Hope you enjoy the show, and we'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.